This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. In a few days, Queen Elizabeth II will be laid to rest. After that, though, in the days, weeks, months after that, are Canadians going to want to talk about our ties to the monarchy? Well, sure sounds like it from the latest Ipsos poll done on this topic. And Sean Simpson from Ipsos Public Affairs joins us now to talk about that. Hi, Sean. Good morning. So what does this poll tell us? Well, it tells us that Canadians are very divided and conflicted on the future role of the monarchy in Canada. You've got roughly half at 54% who believe that Canada should end its ties to the monarchy, which leaves the other half at 46% uh, believing that uh, we should keep the status quo. Now, this very much depends on who you ask, because if you remove Quebec from the calculation... Uh, they're about 25% of the population of Canada, by the way. But if you exclude Quebec from the calculation, a majority say we should keep the monarchy. But, of course, a very strong majority in Quebec say we should abolish our ties. Oh, okay. That is so interesting then, because it is a bit of a complicated process to get into to actually talk about changing the monarchy here in Canada. So regionally, were there any other differences that struck you? Yeah, there are actually, and many of them are, are found right here in, in British Columbia. Uh, in fact, only 46% of uh, British Columbians believe that uh, Canada should end its formal ties with the monarchy. British Columbians are uh, most uh, likely to praise the job that Queen Elizabeth has done uh, in her role as monarch. 90% approval rating for the Queen uh, in her role. That's the highest uh, in, in the country. Um, but British Columbians are also among the most uh, support of the idea of a referendum here in Canada to to decide the future of the monarchy. And on the face of it, you say, well, isn't that contradictory? Didn't we say that they're among the least likely to, to say they want to abolish it? Just because, you know, your, your, your support or opposition towards the monarchy doesn't necessarily mean that you don't support Canadians having a choice. Uh, and a majority of British Columbians are saying, yeah, you know what, we should, in fact, have a choice. But as you say, the process of actually instituting constitutional change uh, would be Herculean yes. uh, <laughs> as an understatement. Uh, and, and just simply the fact, even if we were to have a referendum, a simple national majority would, would hardly be enough to get the cooperation of the provinces. Okay, well, this certainly, this poll makes it sound that way for sure. What about age differences in your poll? Yeah, there are age differences, uh, in fact, uh, and as you might expect, uh, older uh, Canadians uh, are most likely to say the Queen has done a good job uh, in her role as monarch. Uh, they're most likely to believe that King Charles will do a good job in his role as monarch, uh, and uh, uh, they're, they are the least likely to believe that Canada should sever ties with the monarchy. 
So that's over the age 55. If we look at the younger generations, um, you know, they're, 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 they're much less likely to uh, support the monarchy. Uh, they're more likely to support uh, a referendum. They're more likely to believe that the monarchy has too much of a, of a role in Canada. And this is important. They're most likely to believe that the monarchy is too linked to the history of colonialism and slavery Mm -hmm. to have a legitimate place in society today. Okay, and so was there a difference in people's feelings of Queen Elizabeth II versus King Charles III? Most definitely. So 82% of Canadians thought that the Queen did a good job in her role as monarch. But when we ask people if they're confident that King Charles III will do, we'll get, it, get, get used to that, King Charles III will do a good job in his role as monarch, only a slim majority agrees. So there's a gap of about 25 points there. And when we look at the favorability of, of, uh, of, of King Charles, you know, we've got about 44% who are favorable towards him nationally, 40% who are unfavorable. So there's still a bit of a hangover there in terms of the uh, Diana years. I don't think it's necessarily an indictment of the role that he will necessarily do as monarch. I think there's just some personal feelings that are, are, are um, sort of uh, informing that judgment. Because when we look at favorability towards Camillo, the queen consort, uh, 27% are favorable, 51% are unfavorable. So she's kind of got the hard job here, mm-hmm. trying to figure out uh, what she's going to do in her new role and see if she can get uh, Canadians and others to warm up to her a little bit. Boy, I find all this stuff fascinating. And I think it's just because it's this moment in history, right? And I'm sure you're experiencing that as a pollster too, is that what kind of questions can we ask to to really reveal this moment in history and how people are feeling about it? Absolutely. And what we've seen is a a bump in support for the monarchy here in the immediate aftermath of the Queen's uh, passing. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that in a year's time when sort of all of the emotion is 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 drained from the equation, uh, that we'll feel the same way. So we'll certainly go back and check these questions again in the future to see if, if you know, Canadians' uh, minds are shifting, um, you know, after a year or so of Queen Charles' reign, or mm-hmm. King Charles' reign, excuse me. Right? Still hard to get used to. Sean, thank it, you. It is very hard. <laughs> Thanks <laughs> for that. My pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, they knew the crowds would come out to see the Queen lying in state, but boy, the crowds have really responded beyond what they even expected. The queue has now been paused to try to let it catch up. The wait, something like 14 hours. Let's get the latest now from London. Ben O'Hara-Byrne joins us, host of A Little More Conversation, who is live in London covering the preparations for the Queen's funeral. Hello, Ben. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. So what is the situation with the lineup right now? Well, they've had to pause it. I mean, I don't think they came as a big surprise, but the line grew exponentially over the 24 hours from the time I was there yesterday, when it was about, you know, three and a half kilometers long, about a five-hour wait. All of a sudden, you know, after work hours yesterday, that just started to grow and grow and grow. Uh, I checked sort of late last night, and it was up to about, you know, nine, ten kilometers. Now they've added a wait time. It was about nine, ten hours, and that just continued to to grow. And they've run out of room, really, to continue to accommodate the line. It had gotten that long. So they pause it. It's still paused. They're asking people to check back to see when, in fact, they can join. Um, and, you know, we're heading into the weekend now. People are going to come from other parts of the country. They already have. Um, and, it's you know, there's obviously a lot of people want to pay their respects, want to be part of history. And there's only so many people they can pass through so quickly. So as you pointed out, uh, demand is, is beyond their ability to cope with it right now. 
and uh, they're just going to pause it for a while and try and start it up again, I imagine, as soon as they can. You know, reading through a lot of the British media here, Ben, is it also clear that it has become kind of the thing to do is to go get in this lineup and make sure that you can say that you were there and did that? Yeah, it's sort of a, people are of two minds here. I was speaking to someone earlier, you know, a lot of Londoners are like, I, I would never wait that long. You know, we'll, we'll find another way to pay tribute to the Queen. Uh, but the others I spoke to, you know, they obviously feel that this was something they had heard stories again, as I mentioned uh, to you yesterday, they heard stories from their parents and grandparents about the Queen's coronation or seeing Winston Churchill lie in state and, and, you know, sort of imparted upon their kids about just how important these moments were and that if you didn't do it, you would, you would regret it. You know, this is something you'll be talking about uh, for a very long time. And as their parents talked about having experienced these similar moments in British history for a very long time. So I imagine that's the impetus. And as the weekend continues, and of course, it is finite. It's going to end on Monday morning at 6.30 a.m. London time. It's going to come to an end. And there's only so many people they can accommodate. So, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, the, the demand has truly been something. I think they anticipated it, but I don't know if they anticipated it would be this big. So can you tell us more about what we've learned regarding the preparations and how the funeral is going to go? Yeah, we've, we've learned a lot more, obviously, about the Canadian delegation, 19 uh, Canadians coming uh, to take part, including, uh, you know, the current governor general, prime minister and, uh, and high commissioner, but also former prime ministers, former governors general, uh, we have Indigenous leaders coming as well, Order of Canada recipients. Uh, so they'll be here. I think they're landing tomorrow morning. Uh, and then, of course, 500 dignitaries from around the world, heads of state, are all coming this way. So the preparations have been intense. Uh, Metropolitan Police here saying it's going to be the biggest operation in their history. Uh, they've been preparing for it for a very long time. I mean, the plans have been in place, but actually making it all work within a short period of time will be a challenge. Uh, but, they, you know, they're used to big events here. So I was speaking to a security expert this morning who says, you know, it's, it's a question of scale and timing. But, uh, you know, they've handled events like this in the past. They're going to create a ring of steel around sort of that area around the House of Parliament, Westminster Abbey, Buckingham Palace and so forth, and just control access to it. And that's how it's going to work. You know, they're obviously monitoring threat assessments, talking to groups like CSIS and the CIA about what they know, just trying to make sure there aren't any threats out there. Um, but, you know, on the ground, it's going to be simply... It's going to be very difficult to get into that area on Monday morning. Uh, and I was told that even if you were the prime minister of a country and you showed up late and got to the, you know, to the security court and said, hey, I'm the prime minister of such and such, they would say, well, we're sorry. You right. missed your bus. You know, good luck. Oh, yeah. boy. The amount of organization is just unreal. Uh, ben, thank you so much for that. As always, Simi, thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I want to make sure we talk about a very important story here in B.C., and that is the latest statistics from BC's corner. That rate of toxic drug deaths in this province has doubled since we declared a public health emergency way back in 2016. So declaring a public health emergency was supposed to focus attention, bring resources to bear on the issue so we could improve the situation. And yet, now we know the numbers have actually doubled talk more about that, we're joined by Guy Felicella, who is a harm reduction advocate, to talk more about this. Hi, Guy. Hi, Timmy. Thanks for having me. 
I know we, you know, we have you on every once in a while and we talk about this, but it just would be nice sometimes if we actually talked about things improving, wouldn't it? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, one of those things that just keeps on going. And I, I feel, you know, the government's announced some programs, but it's truly just so challenging for people to access or whether they can get services that are being implemented. Um, you know, we've tipped around on the sidelines quite a bit. Uh, we just haven't uh, made significant uh, changes to, you know, protocols, policies that uh, would enable people to access, you know, even safer substances um, so that they don't, um, you know, sadly overdose. And I think one of the things that I've also pointed out is that, you know, out of the 192 people, how many people actually had a diagnosed substance use disorder and how many people um, out of that 192 were employed or worked in the construction industry or trades industry. And the alarming uh, numbers of males that are, are dying is 78%. About 57 to 60% are dying in private residence. So that's just a house like, you know, most of your listeners. So um, we just haven't, uh, you know, done enough to actually um, make those changes significantly so that people can access these safer substances. And sadly, that's why uh, the numbers are so shocking. Right. Are you saying that we're not capturing the actual people who are being impacted here? Because I, I still think after all these years, four, five, six years, six and a half now of dealing with this, people still view this as something that happens somewhere else and not to them. Yeah, most definitely. I, I mean, this is in every community across British, every community across Canada. Um, there's people dying. If you look at the, the data and uh, people are dying in all across the province, uh, Fort Nelson, Vernon, wherever. Um, and the overdose crisis is a lot closer than people think. We often, you know, how it's been portrayed for so long is that, it's, uh, you know, a poverty issue or a homeless issue. It's truly not the case. And, you know, one of the things that I keep pointing out is that how many people have died actually had a substance use disorder and how many people are just intermittent substance users because, um, the numbers aren't going down, and the reality was we were at about 250 deaths per year from the 90s right up until probably 2012, 2013, which is would be under uh, one person a day. Now we're at, you know, six a day. And in fact, this 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 past few months actually shows how devastating this has been, Guy. I was taking a look at some of these statistics, and they're saying there were 192 drug-related deaths in July. That went up 31% from June. What what is going on? Well, it's just you, you can never you'll, you'll never be. It's so unpredictable. And that's just what I keep saying to people. The concentration levels of the fentanyl have gone extremely higher, um, you know, and some were at 30 percent, which is just, you know, it, it doesn't matter if it's 10 bucks or a thousand bucks. Like just doing something can kill you now. Um, and, you know, obviously, uh, I think, you know, a lot of the disorganized crime is making the not, you know, having the knowledge how to make these substances or they're being made uh, domestically now instead of uh, imported. I, I mean, there's just many factors that go in, but the one thing that I can say is that it's just that unpredictable. It can be 192. It can go down to, you know, 150 or, and then shoot back up. But we are going to see over uh, 200 deaths per month um, consistently if we don't make significant changes. And also, are we focusing in the wrong locations? Because according to the coroner's service, the highest rates of death are reported in smaller B.C. communities, Lillooet, Mission, Terrace, Powell River, and the Caribou and Chilcotin. 
Yeah, and that, and the reason for that is because they just they don't have the services that uh, such as like Vancouver Fraser Health or or Island Health would have, uh, and so in the rural communities as well, um, you know, people don't have those harm reduction facilities, don't have doctors available, don't have a supervised consumption site to go to to build relationships with people, even if um, you know. So they they use alone or they use in buildings or behind buildings or in the bushes, and sadly they. Um, you know, it's that unpredictable, they die. And so, Guy, what are you hoping, like, in the next little while then, as we continue to talk about this and focus on this, is there anything out there that you feel on the horizon might make a difference here? Well, I mean, I'm always optimistic that, uh, you know, we can, If you know, I think we're not just changing drug policy. We have to change people's belief systems because we've been conditioned to believe a certain way for so long. I don't blame people for how they view things. However, I do blame them for not doing the research to understand uh, where our drug policies are rooted in racism, discrimination towards not only people of color, indigenous people, but people who use substances. And so um, if it were the case, like the same thing with alcohol, you know, we don't assume that everybody goes into uh, uses alcohol as problematic uh, substance use. So uh, it's the same thing with substances. And so I'd like to see people who don't have a substance use disorder have the ability to access uh, safer substances as well, because I, I kind of believe that uh, the intermittent users are the ones that are at uh, severe risk um, as well, um, at higher risk for sure, uh, because they don't have any tolerance. Um, so it just takes one. And sadly, um, it was 192 in July. I think you're absolutely right about that. But, but getting the message through to those intermittent users, I think, is is the key here. But Guy, listen, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Simi. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi. It's been an interesting week for speeches at the Union of BC Municipalities Convention, which is going on in Whistler. One of the criticisms of speeches from provincial cabinet ministers has been not enough substance to help communities deal with all the issues they're facing, issues like affordability and the crisis in healthcare. Well, today it will be Premier John Horgan's turn. That speech coming up this morning. It comes after delegates heard from BC Liberal leader Kevin Falcon, who joins us now. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. Good morning. Good morning. What did you hear from delegates at the convention? Like, what are they most concerned about? Wow. Well, I spent uh, several days doing nothing uh, but listening to delegates. I was in meetings back to back virtually all day, every day from uh, mayors and councillors right across the province. And you know, a, a few big things really stood out. Healthcare is a huge issue. I, I Some of the horror stories that uh, we're hearing from across the province uh, are really, really terrifying. And I think that I would be safe to say that most of the de- delegates were hugely disappointed at the response they received from the health minister, who essentially just rambles on and on with his answers and doesn't give enough time for any of the delegates to ask questions, kind of running out the clock. Uh, crime and social disorder was another issue um, that the catch and release program that the NDP has been running, uh, especially with prolific offenders, has created chaos in communities. And finally, I would say just the housing affordability issue and, and the frustration around housing. I, and, you know, a lot of the a lot of the progressive uh, councillors out there will recognize that they're part of the problem, too, a lot of the councils. Uh, but they also point out that the province has been a huge part of the problem uh, with a lot of the restrictions, regulations, paperwork, especially with BC housing, they put into place. So those would be sort of the big three. 
Is it fair to say that your approach to affordability, because I know you talked about this in your speech, that you believe that supply is the issue here, that we need lots more supply? Absolutely. That's a major, major part of it. And what's happened, you've got to understand, like for the first uh, five years of the NDP government, um, they focused on the demand side of the equation because they, uh, they frankly identified the problem incorrectly. And so what they said is, let's, let's put a bunch of new taxes on housing and that's going to create housing affordability. And instead, five years later, we've got the most expensive housing in North America. And now they only now have they said, oh, we've got to do something about supply. Uh, and, and I agree with that. I've been saying that since day one. The problem is I don't have any confidence that they'll know how to do it properly. And that's why I pointed out at the uh, convention, mark my words, uh, having David Eby think that he knows how to create supply in the housing market when, you know, frankly, he hasn't got five minutes of experience in the private sector. Uh, this won't end well. Okay, but what would you do differently then? Because people would argue that you were also part of a government years ago that saw this happening and didn't do anything. Yeah, well, that's not that's not correct. We brought in the uh, foreign buyers tax, which which addressed at that point it was very early, um, low levels, frankly, of of foreign buying. Uh, but we moved to deal with that. And look, when I when I retired from public life uh, in 2013, uh, a townhome in Surrey was about four hundred thousand dollars, an average townhome price. Today, it's a million dollars. So, you know, uh, that, that's one of the reasons I want to come back, because I want to make sure that we correct this. But we have to have people that know what they're doing. Um, I've spent decades in, you know, working in the, uh, the real estate uh, business. I know all about housing. And I think that one of the things you have to do is you have to make sure that we incentivize the local governments to do the right thing with, with, with really strong penalties if they don't. Uh, because it should never take, as it does today, five to six years to, to have, have to zone a single residential tower in the city of Vancouver. How is it possible we got to a stage in, in, in our lives where, you know, our country could fight and win the Second World War faster than it takes to get a single residential tower zoned in Vancouver? I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. So, so there's a lot of improvement we can do. Okay, so then how does that work then? Because we know that, as you mentioned, David Eby there, his suggestion is that it's time for the province to take some of that power away to make sure those projects can go through. What are you suggesting? Well, what I'm suggesting is that uh, we can streamline the approval processes and through legislation, we can ensure that there's timeliness in the approval process. The key is making sure that you get it right and making sure that you have the right incentives so that local governments want to do the right thing, uh, that they're not going to be penalized for doing it. And as I pointed out in my speech, the province has to also take its share of responsibility and accountability for making sure we do things right, too. Um, and I think that what's happened right now is David Eby and the NDP have taken a lot of what used to be independent professionals could make decisions around environmental issues, for example, uh, so that developers could work with uh, independent professionals, much like they work with engineers and others to you know, get housing built. Uh, but what the NDP did is brought all those services, uh, the services of uh, environmental professionals, for example, back into government, which means that now you have to go through the provincial government, which means that there's no timeliness that could, they can take years to to you know give straightforward approvals for very low risk elements and and so these are the kind of things that you know help uh, make housing more expensive because the longer it takes to get housing built the more the costs are going to add up uh, right. and that means that uh, you know the end consumer is going to end up paying the higher prices let's talk about the big issue though for municipal councils which yes streamlining the process would help but the fact that they go through those public hearings and they have to hear from the public and it almost seems like they become afraid to vote on these big projects because they are changing neighborhoods. How do you deal with that? 
Well, that's where I think the province through legislation can really set the table and make it clear so that the entire public knows that, uh, for example, along transit corridors, you, you, you know, just pick, um, you know, a radius around transit corridors, there is going to be a requirement for higher density. You can leave some flexibility to the local governments to determine the mix, whether it's condos or rental or whatever the case may be. Uh, but you make it very clear that that's where there's going to be density. So there's not a lot of room to go around for, you know, for whether it's going to happen or not. And that way uh, you get a situation where they are relieved of having to have a neighborhood by neighborhood fight along a transit corridor about what kind of density there's going to be. Um, that's something that the province can take care of so that, you know, they can get ahead and start approving projects. And then the public can blame the province, quite frankly, if they want to. But I can tell you this, uh, there is no doubt in my mind that if we are going to give young people uh, uh, any chance of having a crack at affordable housing, we have got to get going on moving supply into the marketplace. How would you assess where the government is at right now? There's been a lot of criticism that they seem kind of stuck, that there's no progress being made. What do you see? Well, look, I, I think here's the problem. Uh, the NDP promised they were going to build 114,000 affordable homes within a 10-year period. Now, the problem is these are ridiculous promises. Government can't build 114,000 homes. So far, halfway through their 10-year plan, they've built exactly 7% uh, of that affordable amount, 7,100 units of housing. 40% of those were started under the previous BC Liberal government. Um, the fact of the matter is, if you want to get affordable housing build, you need to flood the zone. If I could borrow a hockey analogy, you need to get a lot more of everything into the marketplace, rental, condos, townhomes. And when you start doing that, then you start to break the back of affordability. Then you will start to see uh, that you'll get, you know, more competition happening, for example, on, on new rental products, because there will be a lot more landlords having to compete for tenants. That's when you start to see uh, a break for, you know, hard hit tenants. Uh, but, you know, to, to make that happen, you have to have a plan. You've got to work with the development business uh, industry because you've got to make sure you get the right incentives so that you'll get them to engage in the right behavior. You've got to work with local governments. You've got to make sure you have the appropriate carrots and sticks approach to make sure they're incentivized to do the right thing and penalized for not doing anything, which some, frankly, uh, governments do. They do nothing to make contributions. Um, and then when you start to do that and you get rid of the red tape and regulation that gets in the way and hinders progress, um, then you'll start to get some supply into the marketplace. Then we'll start to see some results. Oh, this is such a fascinating discussion. But listen, we're all out of time. Thank you so much for being with us. No problem. Thanks so much for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. We are going to talk about the 2022 World Cup. Why? Well, there's some interesting developments when it comes to Team Canada and what they're going to be wearing on the pitch. For more on this, we're joined now by Joshua Cloak, who's a staff writer for The Athletic. You should check out his article on The Athletic about this. It's absolutely fascinating. I was reading it yesterday. Joshua, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks so much. And let me know if there's any extra white spot uh, floating right? around. We can't get any of that Listen, here in Hamilton. And I I, I'm kind of jonesing, to be honest. <laughs> Listen, I can't even use these white spot gift cards, okay? If I had some, I'd give them out. Believe me. Um, tell me why, Joshua, why won't Team Canada, the men's team, be wearing newly designed kits for the World Cup? Yeah, and it's probably important to, to note here from the start, you know, kits, soccer kits are are huge, you know, it's a billion dollar business because kits have become kind of streetwear that, that people don't just wear, you know, for games. They wear them out, you know, on the street to represent their teams. They're a lot more practical than a hockey jersey or a basketball jersey. And every time there's a World Cup or any big international tournament, national teams usually have kits designed 
by their kits makers, be it Adidas or Nike. Um, and look, it's a it's a huge way to drive business, to drive revenue, and to bring eyeballs to the national team. Um, and again, every World Cup, teams get new kits. But this year, um, I think for a variety of reasons, Canada, the first time they're going to a World Cup in 36 years, will not be getting a new kit. Their kits maker is is Nike. And listen, it's it's really disappointing both for Canadian fans and you know, in the article, I talked to Canadian national team players about it. They're disappointed, too, because this is kind of a young, new, vibrant, really fast and exciting and marketable Canadian team. And I think there's a real missed opportunity here, you know, to, to market this team to the rest of the globe. And as they kind of announce themselves to the soccer world, right? Yeah, I, I don't understand if every other team and, and I mean that in a literal sense, every other team going to the World Cup yeah. is getting a newly designed kit. Why is it that Canada couldn't say, listen, we have to make this happen? Well, the official answer we got from Nike in reporting this story is that Canada is on a, quote, different kit development cycle. Um, And you can kind of make of that, you know, that reasoning what you will. But in talking to people kind of behind the scenes about this, you know, when kits are designed, they're not just designed and and released within a six-month period. It takes about 18 months you know, to design a kit, develop a kit, run it through kind of market research. And if you look at 18 months back, and and the impetus for all this is that Nike's kits, World Cup kits were all released yesterday, you know, Brazil, the Netherlands, the United States, with the exception of Canada. 18 months ago, Canada, Canada's men's national team was an afterthought. And there was no real chance. No one gave them any hope of going to the World Cup but I think anybody who's followed Canada knows that their ascent has been rapid over the last six, nine months or so. So I think there was a lot of people at Nike kind of caught on their heels and saying, we don't have anything for Canada because they got so good in such a short amount of time. They're wearing basically the same kind of team wear generic kits that you might see kind of in in rec league games in, in Vancouver, and I think that's really disappointing for a lot of people. Oh, that's that's really disappointing because I know this is a bit of a Cinderella team. So many people are going to be watching. They'll be on the world stage. What does Soccer Canada have to say about this? Soccer Canada, basically, in an interview I did, I had with Earl Cochran, the General Secretary of Canada Soccer, about a variety of topics, he basically said this is a Nike issue. He said these conversations didn't happen. They don't know why they didn't happen. And look, Nike is also obviously a partner with the women's national team. And the women's national team are kind of what we would call a premier product for Nike. They got new kits um, for the 2021 Olympics where they won a gold medal. Really stunning shirts that have kind of different sizes of maple leaves all over them. And I think that's something that, you know, a lot of fans can identify with. And Again, we all know it's it's no different in Vancouver and Toronto and all the big cities in Canada. When the World Cup happens, things kind of slow down. People want to rep their team and and, and get out in the public. And it's frustrating that that's probably not going to be able to happen as much with, with Canada. I mean, the jerseys are available. I think you can see them. They're not exactly stunning shirts compared to some of the other shirts you're going to see at the World Cup. So it's kind of a missed opportunity, but I guess what it does speak to is just how much more planning and you know needs to be done before Canada really kind of announces themselves as a top-tier soccer nation, right? Yeah, I know. I feel like we need every advantage, though, that we can get for this team as they go to the World Cup for this first time in 30 years. Because of all the publicity now, Joshua, and the story that you've written about this, is there any chance that things could change? No. 
and I, I oh. don't mean to kind of put the nail in the coffin there, but no, um, the kits have already been submitted to FIFA for the World Cup. Interestingly enough, what Canada Soccer did tell me is that they've got approval from uh, FIFA to bring three shirts to the World Cup. It's the white one, the red one, and the black one. The black one is, is one that was kind of a, a bit of a newer shirt, and it's one that they wore when they beat Mexico and they beat the United States. So I think that one means a lot to players. Um, most teams, or I should say every team, only gets two, but it does sound like FIFA might have granted them special exception to wear the black shirt against Croatia because Croatia's shirts are also kind of a red and white pattern. So that's something that I guess is a bit of a, you know, a silver lining throughout all of this, but no, these are the kits that Canada is going to wear. And I would suggest if, if you're a you know, Canadian national team fan, you, you try and get one now because supply could be, could be short, right? Oh boy. Okay. Thanks so much for explaining it to us this morning, Joshua. No problem. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. 